From New York, this is Democracy Now! My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Twenty years ago today, the United States invaded the oil-rich nation of Iraq, beginning a devastating war that destroyed Iraq, defied international law, helped destabilize much of the Middle East. Today, we spend the hour with two Iraqis, the journalist Forat Alani and the poet and novelist Sanan Antun. I think it's very important to remember the lies that were spread at the time to justify the invasion occupation, also to look at the legacy of what the invasion occupation has left Iraqis with and what kind of challenges uh, they face as they live with the consequences of that illegal and destructive war, which to my mind amounts to terrorism. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Chinese President Xi Jinping is in Moscow for talks with President Vladimir Putin in his first visit to Russia since it invaded Ukraine. Beijing's show of support for Putin comes days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin for war crimes for deporting Ukrainian children to Russia. This is ICC President Pyotr Hofmansky. The judges have reviewed the information and evidence submitted by the prosecutor and determined that there are credible allegations against these persons for the alleged crimes. The ICC is doing its part of work. As a court of law, the judges issued arrest warrants. Their execution depends on international cooperation. Putin could be arrested if he travels to a member country of the International Criminal Court. Russia is not a member, nor are China, the United States or India, which is hosting a G20 summit in New Delhi in December. In an apparent act of defiance, Putin visited the occupied Ukrainian city of Mariupol, a symbol of Ukrainian resistance. He also visited Crimea Saturday to mark the ninth anniversary of its annexation. In other news about the war, Russia, Ukraine, Turkey and the United Nations agreed Friday to extend a deal allowing for shipments of Ukrainian grain via Black Sea ports for 120 days. Here in the United States, The Guardian's reporting the Biden administration's quietly resumed deportations to Russia. After suspending them last year following the invasion of Ukraine, many of those facing deportation could end up in prison or on the front line if sent back home. Over the weekend, protests took place across the United States, calling for an end to U.S. involvement in the Ukraine war as the world marks the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. In the nation's capital, people rallied in front of the White House and marched in the streets of D.C. This is Claudia de la Cruz from the People's Forum. We're here to let the world know that we are committed as a people to shut the war machine down. The planet and humanity depend on us. We got to fight. We got to an end to NATO, an end to Africa, an end to the Southern Command, and the levels of sanctions that the U.S. has all across the globe. We need to continue to make the connections of working-class people in the United States to working-class people all around the world. So we're here making those demands. We're also recommitting ourselves to lift up the anti 
The Cost of War Project estimates up to 306,000 Iraqi civilians have died from direct war-related violence, while hundreds of thousands more Iraqi civilians have died from indirect causes and millions have been displaced. Some estimates put the death toll in Iraq at over 2 million. In the lead-up to the illegal U.S. invasion in 2003, tens of millions of people took to the streets and thousands of anti-war protests across the globe. After Headlines will spend the hour looking at the U.S. invasion of Iraq with the Iraqi poet Sanan Antoun and French-Iraqi journalist and filmmaker Furat Alani. In Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, representatives from Israel and Palestine agreed to de-escalate tensions ahead of Ramadan, including an Israeli pledge to halt discussion of new settlement construction for four months. The talks were also attended by U.S., Egyptian and Jordanian officials. A similar pledge to curb violence was reached a month earlier, but did little to quell the mounting violence. Israeli forces and settlers have killed at least 85 Palestinians so far in 2023 as members of the extreme-right Israeli government have openly called for violence against Palestinians. In Gaza, protesters condemn Palestinian officials for taking part in the Egyptian meetings. Attending these kinds of summits while there are massacres, while there is this fascist government in Israel, and during this critical time, is disregarding the pain and dignity of the Palestinian people. Elsewhere in Egypt, the foreign ministers of Turkey and Egypt met in Cairo for their first official talks in a decade as the two countries moved to restore ties. The pair agreed to reestablish ambassadorships as soon as possible. Turkey and Egypt severed ties in 2013 after President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who was then army chief, led the ouster of the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi, a Turkish ally. Tensions have also simmered over the conflict in Libya and over maritime borders in the eastern Mediterranean. UBS has agreed to buy smaller rival bank Credit Suisse for $3.2 billion in a bid to stem global financial turmoil following the collapse of two U.S. banks a week and a half ago. The deal was brokered by the Swiss government. The U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank and others welcomed the news as they sought to reassure investors of the stability of global financial markets. Here in the United States, New York Community Bank Corps reached a deal to take over the failed Signature Bank and assume all its deposits a week after it was seized by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Signature's 40 branches will now operate as Flagstar Banks, which New York Community Bank Corps acquired in December. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren called Sunday for an independent investigation into the collapse of Signature and Silicon Valley Bank. Warren also called for Biden to fire Fed Chair Jerome Powell, whom she blames for helping undo financial regulations and for continuing to raise interest rates despite forecasts it could cost two million people their jobs. French President Emmanuel Macron is facing a no-confidence vote in Parliament today after he pushed through a highly unpopular pension law using executive powers Friday, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Protests continue to rock France over the weekend, with over 300 people arrested. Garbage continues to pile up on city streets as sanitation workers have been on strike for two weeks. Bah, on continue. 
on continue, on lâche pas, on tient. We continue. Tient, We continue. We don't give in. We resist et despite la, the la fatigue. Our determination is more than reinforced since the reform was pushed through. So I hope that everywhere in France, people will mobilize. More protests and labor strikes are planned for the week. Press freedom groups are condemning the 12-year jail sentence of two Belarusian journalists after a closed-door trial. Lyudmila Chekina and Marina Zolotava work for an independent outlet, which was shut down by Belarusian forces in 2021 and labeled terrorists. This comes as a new report by the U.N. says human rights violations and repression carried out by Belarusian authorities against protesters and dissidents could amount to crimes against humanity. In Pakistan, police have raided and arrested dozens of supporters and aides of former Prime Minister Imran Khan following protests over Khan's attempted arrests. On Saturday, a court canceled arrest warrants for Khan after he appeared in person and scheduled a hearing on March 30th. Khan, who was removed from office by parliament last year, denies the corruption charges against him and is calling for snap elections. At least 16 people have died after a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck off the southern coast of Ecuador Saturday, about 50 miles from Guayaquil. One of the deaths was reported in northern Peru. This comes as the region is still reeling from Cyclone Yaku, which killed at least eight people. My house was filled with water up to the waist. It reached us. We have lost everything. I lost everything. I don't even have anywhere to sleep, where to sit. An estimated 60 people have died since the rainy season began in Peru. Elsewhere, intense flooding in Turkey's earthquake-stricken southern provinces has killed at least 16 people. The torrential rains have also damaged dozens of camps in northwestern Syria, which house many displaced survivors of the February 6 earthquakes. In southeast Africa, the death toll from tropical cyclone Freddy, believed to be the longest ever in recorded history, has risen to 522 across Malawi, Mozambique and Madagascar. Meanwhile, California is bracing for more heavy storms this week as the 12th atmospheric river this season hits the battered state. Thousands were ordered to evacuate Sunday in central California. In the San Joaquin Valley, farmers say damage to crops could impact national and international food supply. Breaks everywhere, bridges, weirs, everything. I, I can't even begin to put a number on that. Crop losses. My personal opinion is between hundreds of millions to billion plus dollars. And once those next storms hit, the flows will double, triple again. And uh, it's just going to keep coming and coming. Wyoming has become the first state to ban the use of abortion pills. The law goes into effect in July, making it a felony to prescribe, sell and use abortion medication, the most popular method to terminate a pregnancy in the United States. People found in violation would face up to six months in prison and a fine. Meanwhile, the Republican governor, Mark Gordon, allowed another sweeping anti-abortion measure to become law without his signature. The so-called Life is a Human Right Act went into effect Sunday and prohibits abortion under most circumstances punishable with up to five years in prison. 
The maternal mortality rate in the United States skyrocketed in 2021, with black women more than twice as likely to die than white women. That's according to new CDC data, which said the U.S. saw a 40 percent increase in maternal deaths in 2021 compared to the previously previous year, largely due to the compounding impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. maternal mortality rate is more than 10 times higher than the estimated rates in other wealthy countries. Countries. Donald Trump said he expects to be arrested Tuesday in connection with the Manhattan DA investigation into hush money payments made to adult film actor Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. In a post on his site, Truth Social, Trump called on his supporters to, quote, protest, take our nation back. Trump is expected to be indicted in the case, though the timing is unknown. A U.S. Air Force veteran from Texas was sentenced to two years in prison for his role in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. 55-year-old Larry Brock entered the Senate chambers in full combat gear and rifled through senators' desks. In Florida, the city of Miami Beach declared a state of emergency, imposing an overnight curfew Sunday after two fatal shootings this weekend and, uh, quote, excessively large and unruly crowds, unquote, during spring break. Officials are meeting today to consider enforcing the measures again from Thursday to next Monday. And elsewhere in Florida, hundreds of farm workers and their supporters led a five-day, 50-mile march demanding humane working conditions and better protections. Workers are calling on food retailers to join the Fair Food Program, an initiative launched by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in 2011, to improve conditions for farm workers and end modern-day slavery. The march began outside a labor camp in the agricultural community of Pakoki, where hundreds of farm workers were forced into brutal working and living conditions under threats of violence, deportation and insurmountable debts. The owner of the labor camp was sentenced to nearly a decade in prison in 2022 for leading a federal racketeering and forced labor conspiracy across at least five states. The march ended in Palm Springs Saturday. This is Gerardo Reyes-Chavez, a member of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which organized the action. We've come here to demand that Publix and Kroger supermarkets, which are directly connected to the situation of modern slavery in Bohoki, they buy watermelons from there, and Wendy's too, for them to join the Fair Food Program and put an end to the extreme labor abuses in this country. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back 20 years ago today, the United States invaded the oil-rich nation of Iraq, beginning a devastating war that destroyed Iraq, defied international law, and helped destabilize much of the Middle East. Today, we spend the hour with two Iraqis, the journalist Fordat Alani and the poet and novelist Sanan Antoun. Stay with us.
Migration by Noiris here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, it was 20 years ago today when the U.S. invaded Iraq on the false pretext that Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction. The attack came despite worldwide protest and the lack of authorization from the United Nations Security Council. At around 5.30 a.m. local time in Baghdad, March 20, 2003, air raid sirens were heard in Baghdad as the U.S. invasion began. Within the hour, President George W. Bush gave a nationally televised speech from the Oval Office announcing the war had begun. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. I want Americans and all the world to know that coalition forces will make every effort to spare innocent civilians from harm. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. And this is how we began our broadcast on Democracy Now! 20 years ago today, March 20th, 2003. Welcome to Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Just about 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time last night, the U.S. military began an unprovoked attack on Iraq. Air raid sirens sounded throughout Baghdad just before the sun rose. Anti-aircraft fire filled the sky and explosions shook the city. Pentagon officials said over 30 Tomahawk cruise missiles were launched from warships. Two stealth bombers each dropped two one-ton bombs. It's not clear what has been hit or the extent of the casualties. The Iraqi news agency has just reported there are 14 injured and one dead. Iraq responded by firing three missiles into northern Kuwait, according to the U.S. military. That could not be independently confirmed. The attack was not the beginning of the expected massive, what the U.S. government calls shock and awe campaign. Instead, it was a targeted strike on Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. It is not yet clear whether the assassination attempt was successful. Hours before the attack, Senator Robert Byrd, the oldest voice in the U.S. Congress, condemned the Bush administration's war plans. The West Virginia Democrat said, Today I weep for my country. No more is the image of America one of strong yet benevolent peacekeeper. Around the globe, our friends mistrust us. Our word is disputed. Our intentions are questioned. Byrd continued, We flaunt our superpower status with arrogance. After war has ended, the United States will have to re- build much more than the country of Iraq. We will have to rebuild America's image around the globe.
Around the world, international leaders condemned the U.S. war. Top officials from France, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Greece, Malaysia, Indonesia and New Zealand were among the countries opposing the attack. That was an excerpt from our coverage 20 years ago today of the start of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Last week, the Costs of War Project estimated over 550,000 people have been killed in Iraq and Syria since 2003. Some estimates put the death toll in Iraq at over 2 million. Today, the U.S. still has some 2,500 troops in Iraq. Well, we'll spend the broadcast today with two Iraqis looking back at how the unprovoked U.S. invasion devastated their country and helped destabilize much of the Middle East. Farah Talani is a French-Iraqi journalist who was based in Baghdad from 2003 to 2008. He travels to Iraq frequently. He's made several documentaries, including Flavors of Iraq. His first novel is just out in French, titled in English, I Remember Fallujah. His recent piece for The Washington Post is headlined, The Iraq War Helped Destroy What It Meant to Be an Iraqi. He's joining us from Paris, France. And here in New York, Sanan Antun. He is an Iraqi poet, novelist, translator, scholar, born and raised in Baghdad, associate professor at New York University. His piece in The Guardian is just out. It's headlined, A Million Lives Later, I Cannot Forgive What American Terrorism Did to My Country, Iraq. He co-directed a documentary about post-2003 Iraq titled About Baghdad. A collection of his Arabic poetry will appear in English this summer under the title Postcards from the Underworld. His most recent novel is titled The Book of Collateral Damage. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Sinan Antun, let's begin with you. Your reflections on this day, 20 years after the U.S. invaded Iraq. Talk about what happened to your country. Thank you for having me, Amy. I mean, um, what happened in the last 20 years is catastrophic by any measure. Um, if you look at the figures of the people who have been displaced because of this invasion, a total of 8 million Iraqis had to leave their homes. 1.2 million Iraqis are internally displaced in Iraq. There have been at least, well, figures vary, but 1 million deaths. Uh, we have 4 million orphans. We have an economy in shambles. We have a country that is ruled by militias and a country that frequently is in the top most corrupt countries in the world with all kinds of economic and social problems and one country where, the, where climate change is manifesting its destructive effects in, in horrendous ways. And it's important, I think, since we are in the United States, for citizens to remember the amount of lies and how easily they were sold this war. And, as I mentioned in my article, how the support for the war continued for several years. And until recently, a lot of people still think that somehow Iraq was involved with 9-11. And I think it says something, of course about the corporate media, about how information is disseminated to citizens, sorry, and except for Democracy Now! and a few other outlets, the, 
the the media itself, of course, and then, you know, uh, the scribes are all complicit in selling this war and in continuing to give us these happy stories. Just before coming into the studio out here, I was watching MSNBC and one of its reporters was in Baghdad saying how great Baghdad is now because there is tourism and going to one of Saddam Hussein's previous palaces, which was turned into an American university in Baghdad, which is a private university, and telling us, oh, it's a co-ed university, as if Iraq did not have co-ed universities for decades. I can go on, of course, but I'll stop here. Farhat Alani, if you could also uh, respond and give us your reflections on, on this day as we mark 20 years since the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Yes, thank you. And first of all, thank you for, uh, for the invitation. And I'm really honored to share uh, the show with Chinan Antun, who is an uh, inspiration to me. Uh, as he brilliantly said, um, the figures are enough to explain how this invasion, I refuse the term war, because a lot of people and observers are talking about the Iraq war. It was an Iraq invasion, uh, illegal, and its con consequences on many, many points are uh, a disaster. Uh, but what is really important to me as a French uh, of Iraqi descent is to remember that Iraq uh, was, a, was a country. Iraq was a concept. Uh, we didn't know anything about the sectarian view that the U.S. brought in 2003. Of course, it was uh, in history, but uh, Iraqi used to describe themselves as Iraqis. Uh, there was a sense of, of identity, of citizenship. Um, when I was a kid, I had the, the chance to go to Iraq. Uh, I was nine the first time in '89. It was the only year of, of peace from the last 40 years. And uh, the country I discovered was the opposite of, of all the cliches I had about the country. And at the same time, I was uh, rational of the nature of the regime. Um, but I still remember, and I refuse to forget, that Iraq uh, was safe. Um, Iraq had a daily life that was comparable sometimes uh, to the life I had in, in, uh, in France. Again, I, I would like to remind that Iraq was, of course, a, a dictatorship, and uh, it was difficult or impossible to go against the regime. People were uh, jailed, killed, or silenced. Uh, my father was an opponent to the regime, and he left Iraq in the 70s. So we know that, and we knew that at home, uh, back in France. But the idea that uh, 20 years later, we still uh, are talking about how Iraq now is a better place, uh, how Iraq is a democracy, when it's even almost impossible to, to have a sense of what the Iraqi citizenship is today. Iraqis are described with their uh, sects or origin or eth ethnies. Um, Iraqis today are described as Sunnis and Shia, uh, uh, Kurds and Arabs, Christians and, and, and Muslims, which is something um, I, would, um, I would oppose to what Iraq was. And to me, 20 years later, Iraq is part of a collective amnesia. And uh, I think it's very important to highlight how Iraq was and maybe to talk about the future of Iraq.
Well, Farad, if you could talk about, I mean, your piece, you've just elaborated on what uh, exactly has happened to, to Iraqi identity. To what do you attribute the fact that Iraq came to be seen uh, along uh, purely uh, sectarian lines and that now, as you say, people continue to identify as Sunni, Shia, Kurd, etc.? You know, when the American uh, army and when the U.S. administration of George W. Bush uh, invaded Iraq, they came with the idea that Iraqis, again, were uh, not Iraqis. They were qualified by their uh, uh, sects. So from the day after the, uh, the fall of the regime, um, we have seen on TV people that all Iraqis didn't really know, the Iraqi elite that came with the U.S. army representing a concept of Iraq uh, through uh, sects and uh, religion and, and confessions. Um, and so the, we have to remind that uh, everything was destroyed as a country. Uh, the Iraqi army was uh, disbanded. The uh, institution was dismantled. Uh, Iraq went from a very... Uh, a dictatorship to a security and political vacuum that was filled with those ideas that Iraqi discovered to be to be really uh, clear. Uh, um, the concept of of dividing the people, of talking about a majority and a minority, to me was really dangerous because this security and political vacuum I was talking about was filled with people having uh, a short-term vision about Iraq with their own interest with, with probably revenge against uh, the regime. And again, this idea, this very binary vision of Iraq that the Iraqi people was divided in two, like people who supported Saddam and people who were against. Of course, it was much more complex than that. And a lot of mistakes uh, came after the, uh, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, Paul Bremer, who was the um, American administrator of the country, uh, did uh, so many uh, mistakes by, again, dismantling the army, uh, talking about debastification, uh, not allowing a lot of Iraqis to express themselves, to be part of a common project. Um, I clearly remember that all Iraqis, Sunnis or Shia, Christian or Muslim, wanted to be part of something, wanted to be part of a common project. But the system brought by the U.S. Uh, um, mindset at that time uh, were completely against that. And this is something that uh, needs to be highlighted today if you want to understand how Iraq is divided uh, today. Speaking of that division, I'd like to go back to 2006, when then-Senator Joe Biden co-authored a New York Times opinion piece headlined, Unity Through Autonomy in Iraq. In the piece, he called for what's been termed a soft partition of Iraq, calling for the establishment of, quote, three largely autonomous regions with a viable central government in Baghdad. The Kurdish, Sunni and Shiite regions would each be responsible for their own domestic laws, administration and internal security. Baghdad would become a federal zone, while densely populated areas of mixed populations would receive both multi-sectarian and international police protection. Sanan Antun, can you respond? 
I mean, I remember that, and I actually wrote a response to that. It's, it's uh, you know, it's vintage colonial uh, vision and attitude. Uh, Mr. Biden from Delaware uh, co-writes a piece telling Iraqis how their country should should be. And at the time, I mean, despite the the corruption and the sectarian sentiments of so many Iraqi politicians, they were vying and they were in conflict and they were even fighting. But none of them had asked for this type of division, actually, except for the Kurds. But that's a separate issue. But that th- these ideas were internalized then by a lot of Iraqi politicians uh, t- to start calling for a separate zone for this and that. And of course, it would be only an excuse for even more organized corruption and more siphoning of Iraq's resources. Um, but I should say that something that, that I've been thinking about and talking about is, you know, the, the epistemic violence of American occupation of Iraq, which is what, what my friend Farad, who's, who's a talented writer that I admire, and I'm happy to be with him on the show, is this destruction and the erosion of an idea of what is to be Iraqi. Of course, every national identity is a composite, and there are always vying narratives. But what 2003 did is it really tried to dismantle the idea of Iraqi nationalism and replace it with all of these other identities. And thankfully, uh, the 2019 uprising by Iraqi youth, men and women, who went out on the street was actually the most vociferous, eloquent rejection of the regime that the United States installed. And it was a rejection of everything it had it stood for, and it showed that it had failed in every respect. It had failed in providing living, dignified conditions for Iraqi citizens despite all the wealth. And one of the early slogans of that uprising was no to Iran, no to the U.S., because one of the consequences of the U.S. invasion is the disproportionate influence that the Iranian regime has in Iraq through its militias, uh, supporting the Iraqi militias and others. And the other thing is that what the U.S. invasion did to Iraqi sovereignty, you know, we have we have U.S. troops, of course, in Iraq. Turkey has troops in in northern Iraq and Kurdistan and bombs whenever it feels like it. We have massive Iranian influence. And a lot of these U.S. journalists and so-called pundits and experts keep complaining about that. And I remember in the first few weeks of the invasion, there was a news item saying that the Badr brigades, this is the militia of the, at the time it was called the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, which later changed its name, which was based in Tehran, of course, because they were uh, exiled and fought by Saddam Hussein. But the Badr militia came into Iraq, 30,000 armed men, and were allowed to enter into Iraq. And as Farad mentioned, of course, these people went on on rampage, uh, assassinating and killing and exerting vengeance. So the other issue was to completely um, dismantle the state institutions in Iraq and not replace them with functioning institutions. So you disband the army, but never really build a functioning army. And that's why when ISIS comes about, which is itself a product of American presence in occupation in Iraq, it was hatched in the U.S. military prisons. When ISIS comes about, there is no army to actually fight ISIS because of all of the corruption. And let's remember who are the people who were sent to be experts to help rebuild the Iraqi army or the Iraqi police. 
I forgot his name, but the New York City police chief, who is himself corrupt, was sent to Iraq Bernard to supposedly Carrick. help build the army. Exactly. And, you who know, himself was the, jailed in the Bernard Carrick exactly. Detention Center in Lower Manhattan. They took away the name Bernard yes. Carrick once he was jailed there. <laughs> yes. And your viewers should go and look at also how many people who planned and called for the war then went into Iraq as contractors. This was so the elite and those who supported the war did not lose anything. Their, you know, their portfolios tripled, their investments went up and all of that. And of course, it's, it's average citizens who paid the price. But um, and Sinan, I wanted I to follow want... up on something that you said earlier, um, and that was when the after the 9-11 attacks, uh, President Bush immediately started pushing to attack Iraq. And as you said, many people don't realize, understand it, that, I mean, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. A day or two after the attacks, you had President Bush on the Truman balcony with the man they called Bandar Bush, the Saudi ambassador to the United States, smoking uh, cigars together. Um, but uh, right at that time, we interviewed soon after Richard Clark, the counterterrorism czar, um, who said that the day after 9-11, uh, President Bush questioned him and other associates of the White House um, to see if Saddam Hussein did this, see if he's linked in any way. Clark was incredulous. He said in his book, Against All Odds, but Mr. President, al-Qaeda did this. He said, Bush responded, I know, but see if Saddam was involved. Just look, I want to know any shred. Clark added later um, that he felt they were being intimidated to find a link between uh, the 9-11 attacks and Iraq. And when the attack on Iraq came in 2003, you had the leading Democrats, Joe Biden. Hillary Clinton, as mm -hmm. students were being dragged out of her office in New York, she was senator at the time, she voted for the war in Iraq. Talk about the consensus at that point. There wasn't a consensus on the ground, but the media was building this consensus for war. Well, no, that's a very important point. And I think, you know, there was a convergence of, of, of different waves and factions. Of course, we know that from the early 90s, the group of neocons had already started this notion of changing the regime in Iraq. Of course, not for the benefit of the Iraqis or for any concerns for liberty or freedom, but for geopolitical interest and protecting the interests of Israel and thinking of U.S. hegemony. And then it converges with uh, Bush's messianic vision. Let's remember, I mean, those of us who are old enough remember, but I think younger viewers should, should realize and should read, read about the type of messianic insane vision that Bush thought that he was, you know, that he had a mandate from God. And then there is the, you know, um, the lingering issue of his father and the supposed assassination attempt. But exactly right away after 9-11, both Bush and Rumsfeld were into, you know, let's go and, 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 and attack Iraq. So the evidence was manufactured later and it was very weak and flimsy evidence. So when so many until now are saying, had we known back then what we know, actually everything was obvious. Those of us who are, who managed to, to read or who did not have the ideological leaning, it was obvious that there were no weapons of mass destruction and no link with Al-Qaeda. So the question for U.S. citizens and for others is why is it that there was a consensus? And, and I think it's this 
colonial mentality and frankly white supremacy that is uh, internalized by so many. And I, I mentioned in the article that this term that the U.S. Army uses in Iraq and Afghanistan, Indian country, I mean, in the first few months I was watching TV and I saw an embedded journalist. We have to also think not only of embedded journalists, embedded scholars, even embedded artists. The view in mainstream U.S. culture is so skewed that a, con that a film that is actually pro-war, like The Hurt Locker, is considered an anti-war film. But the, the embedded journalist was with a group of U.S. soldiers in a Humvee about to exit a military base that the U.S. had occupied to go into somewhere near Baghdad. And the soldier tells the journalist, we are now in Indian country. And that stayed with me and I looked into it. And what does it mean? I mean, when, when Indian country, meaning, you know, lawless land where there are no laws and no civilization. And that, you know, simultaneously, of course, invokes the national U.S. myth about spreading civilization on this continent and erases genocide and destruction, but also it convinces the soldiers and the viewers that actually are, they are spreading democracy and civilization. And it extends to everyone. I, I mean, uh, a, lot of, a lot of journalists until today and many years into the war would ask, so did we not do something good in Iraq? So where does this assumption that somehow if the U.S. Army goes somewhere, they must do something good? And it's a complete uh, denial of, of the colonialism that is ingrained in this view of looking at the world and looking at other parts of the world. Sanan Antun, uh, we're going to continue this discussion after break. Iraqi poet and author, professor at New York University, and Farad Alani, French-Iraqi journalist. Uh, we will also hear from Sanan a poem he will read, and for Farad to talk about what happened in his city of Fallujah. This all, this conversation, as President um, as President Putin is indicted for war crimes by the International Criminal Court, we're looking back 20 years ago today, when President Bush invaded Iraq. Stay with us. <laughs> by the Iraqi-Canadian musician Nova Imad. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Our guests for this hour and this 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq are two Iraqis, uh, Sinan Antun, Iraqi poet and author, professor at New York University, and Forat Alani, the French-Iraqi journalist whose family is from Fallujah. Nermeen? 
uh, your documentary uh, titled Flavors of Iraq. We'll just go, go to a clip now in which your character visits the Green Zone uh, in 2011, just before the U.S. troop withdrawal. And your character tells American soldiers there what he thinks of the invasion. Let's go to a clip. I told them that freedom can't be forced on people, that they had empowered 1,000 dictators by trying to shoot one, that they had destroyed a country on the basis of a lie, In the world. that they had started a war between armed groups supported by foreign powers, that they had done more bad than good. And today, the country was in pieces. We had nothing to do here. Yes, they had nothing to do here. The Iraq that I dreamed of as a child, the Iraq that my father fled but loved so much, the Iraq split by the Euphrates River, which I take my name from. That Iraq no longer existed. A clip from your documentary, Flavors of Iraq. If you could talk uh, about that documentary and that section, uh, the clip that we just played. Farat. Thank you. Well, the aim of this documentary is, again, to go against this binary vision of, of uh, uh, Iraq. And uh, that's why I uh, struggled during all my career as a journalist to give a subjective uh, view about the Iraq I know and the Iraq uh, I've seen. And uh, <clears throat> the first city I've seen with, along with Baghdad was Fallujah. Fallujah was not uh, a well-known city uh, before uh, the war. It was just, uh, it still is 50 uh, kilometers west of Baghdad. Uh, it was a remote area, very green, along the, the Euphrates River, um, which is my name. For that is uh, the Euphrates uh, River, uh, because my father used to... Uh, to uh, live around, to play around this, uh, this river and, and had good memories. Um, have you heard anywhere uh, talking about Iraq in a beautiful way? Uh, it's very difficult today. I challenge anyone to look for any beautiful picture or uh, uh, image of Iraq. And my aim with this documentary is to remind that Fallujah um, was a peace, peaceful city again, and um, struggled uh, like uh, Baghdad around during the, uh, the embargo that started in uh, 91 until 2003. Um, the idea, again, is to confront uh, a concept that completely disappeared when the uh, U.S. Um, invasion happened uh, in Iraq. And uh, the sequence that you just showed is uh, about maybe the last moments of the uh, U.S. troops uh, occupying Iraq, and I was confronted to uh, the young soldiers who knew, still knew nothing about uh, the country. And our discussion went around the idea that Iraq was more than Sunni and Shia, more than Ba'athist and militias, and I was really happy to give them some news about the Iraq I've seen. And I was amazed and surprised surprised, sorry, how, on how the uh, U.S. soldiers knew nothing about the country uh, and still uh, thought that uh, Saddam had a link with, uh, with Al-Qaeda and with the 9-11 attacks. Uh, so um, 
The aim again, 20 years later, is to describe uh, a concept of Iraq that existed and hopefully, as uh, Sinan Antoun mentioned, will exist again through this new generation of uh, young people who protested uh, since October 2019, um, claiming Iraq, uh, going against the idea that Iraq is between the uh, uh, US and, and Iran. The first sentences uh, in the street were around uh, this type of phrases. We are all Iraqis. Uh, we want to get back our country. And this is the only hope I can see today. After 20 years, going back to, to Iraq and, and to, to cover the news there. Uh, the only hope uh, among all the destruction, all the consequences on every level of the Iraqi society, the only hope is to see this youth um, claiming back what once was a country. I wanted to go, Farat Alani, to a clip of your 2012 documentary, Fallujah, A Lost Generation. In this, Dr. Hannah Ahmed of Fallujah Hospital examines a baby born with deformities. When you made the film, you said one in five babies born in Fallujah exhibited congenital malformations. He needs an operation. At the moment, he's much too weak for us to move forward with surgery. So we have him on observation. Uh, we have seen many other types of deformities. He's not alone. Some are more severe than others. We have some babies born without skulls, without organs, and sometimes with their legs totally twisted. Farhat, if you can talk specifically about your city, about Fallujah, the extent of the attack, the use, for example, um, by the United States, the illegal use of white phosphorus, the second battle of Fallujah in 2004. Yes, and you, you mentioned that Fallujah is my, my parents' uh, hometown. So uh, I had a specific uh, look at the, the city um, for personal reasons, also because Fallujah became sadly well-known um, in the international communities. Uh, Fallujah was one of the first cities to resist the, uh, the U.S. occupation and misbehavior and killings of Iraqi people. Um, and it, when it started in 2003 until 2004, um, the first battle um, between uh, residents of Fallujah and the U.S. Army uh, was a political disaster for, uh, for the U.S. administration. And then, to go briefly, they came back uh, in November 2004 with the idea of erasing Fallujah from the map. And that's what happened. Uh, so when I came back to Fallujah after this second battle, uh, I discovered uh, a city that was uh, effectively, actually, completely destroyed, erased. M around 90% of the houses were, were on the ground. Uh, I had the chance to talk to my uncles that, that stayed there and um, testified that the, 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 the color in the sky changed, that you, a new kind of weapons were used, um, testimonies about white phos phosphorus, about... Uh, very heavy uh, weapons destroying uh, in an instant a house or a street. And we discovered uh, later on that uh, uranium was used. Uh, when I came back to do uh, an investigation about 
some terrific and terrible uh, uh, news about um, babies born with deformities. Um, uh, the pictures were so terrible that I could not really uh, look at them. And I spent, so I spent two weeks there talking to, uh, to, the, to the inhabitants in Fallujah, to the hospital doctors, uh, going into datas and talking to the families that, was, that were trying to hide uh, those kids. Um, we talked to a lot of scientists, we had studies, we had a lot of uh, data uh, linking the US bombing of Fallujah. Uh, and all the diseases and all the, 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 the um, babies born with deformities. Uh, and you mentioned a, a figure that is still the case today. One on five babies are born with deformities in Fallujah. This is one of the most terrible consequences of the U.S. invasion. Um, and still today, the city is struggling with uh, this sanitary, if we can call this this way, uh, situation in uh, in Fallujah, and this is uh, a catastrophe to me. Sinan Antun, you've written a poem uh, that will appear in your book uh, when it comes out in the summer, an English translation, a translation you've done yourself uh, from the Arabic. If I could ask you, please, uh, to read that poem, which is also uh, about the use of white phosphorus and depleted uranium uh, by the Americans sure. in Iraq. Sure, sure. I mean, it was written years ago after the the catastrophe that Furat was talking about came to light, and it's entitled Phosphorus. Um, when I was a kid, the tail end of my bike had a red reflector. It glowed in the dark, like the eyes of a cat illuminated by the headlights of distant cars, tiny bits of phosphorus. Tiny bits of phosphorus, white phosphorus, illuminated the skies of Fallujah years ago. And now, infants are born there every day, with two heads or without eyes. And thank you. That's a very moving and beautiful poem. Now, we're speaking as the Russian invasion of Ukraine has entered its second year. And we've just heard now that the International Criminal Court has called for the arrest of Putin as a war criminal. Now, uh, the U.S. took many steps to ensure, has taken, that its own officials uh, and military would be protected from any such uh, uh, attempts by the International Criminal Court or any other international body for from facing such uh, allegations. Uh, if you could respond to that. I mean, we've just been talking about the use of chemical weapons and the fact that no one uh, has been charged with war crimes. Well, I, I also want to go back yes, to I, 1991. Sorry. Be, oh, sorry. I didn't know. Sorry. No, Sinan Antun, if you could please respond. Sinan. Um, you know, but the depleted uranium was already used in 1991 and caused catastrophic uh, consequences for Iraqi citizens, especially in Basra, for example, and the skyrocketing cancer rates. But also there were war crimes committed in 1991 in so-called Desert Storm. Uh, there are catas 
horrific images of how the U.S. bombed withdrawing uh, Iraqi troops from Kuwait. It's called the Highway of Death. And there is only one American journalist who took those, those images. And I, don't, I think there was a, a... Most media outlets did not show them because they were too horrific. But, you know, um, there are double and triple standards in so-called international law. And as we can see, of course, these, the law is weaponized when it serves the interest. Because by any measure, Bush, Cheney, Condoleezza Rice... Um, Rumsfeld are all war criminals, but of course they will not be put on trial. And I think actually Bush cannot travel internationally because he, you know, might face consequences. So, um, I mean, the the attitudes, especially of Americans, but of a lot of Europeans, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, in so many ways, just shows the double standards and the also the hierarchy of human worth that a lot of people on this planet believe in who really who really is a full human being that you can empathize with you know because they look like us quote unquote or because they are european from a certain part of europe also and whose death really doesn't count whether they're palestinian or yemeni or syrian or iraqi or afghani whose death doesn't even register and a million deaths becomes just a statistic because they are not viewed as having lived full lives because their lives do not resemble our lives. So, you know, um, Putin is considered a war criminal, but we live in a country where war criminals are still going around, appearing on TV, dancing on the Ellis DeGeneres show. And, um, you know, Bush talks about his paintings. And also when these war criminals die, as with Rumsfeld, none, you know, there isn't even a mention of the catastrophic consequences of their decisions that as we as we talk now about depleted uranium, this is in the unborn babies. This is in the wombs of mothers. This is in the air and in the soil, and it will always be there. And let's put the same question to Forat Alani. Um, as President Putin has been indicted for war crimes on this 20th anniversary of the Bush invasion, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, do you feel that President George W. Bush, that Dick Cheney and other high-level U.S. government officials should be charged with war crimes for what happened to your country, to Iraq? Yes, and as Sinan uh, mentioned, the list of crimes is very long, uh, especially about Iraq, but not only Iraq. Um, it was funny to see the reaction of Joe Biden talking about the ICC going after Putin when uh, Joe Biden said something like, yes, this is great. But at the same time, he said, but us, the USA, we don't uh, recognize the ICC and we, 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 we know why. Uh, Bush would be on the list. Uh, a lot of people would be on the list. Um, even if we can see similarities, of course, with the uh, invasion of Ukraine by, by Putin and Iraq at that time uh, on the illegal aspect, on the aggression of international law. We have 10 um, seconds. It's very important to remind, very important to remind that Bush should be judged. And it's not acceptable that he's still joking about Iraq. Burdat Alani, French-Iraqi journalist, Sanan Antoun, Iraqi poet and author. We will link to your works. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.